0: I'll encourage you to take a copy of the Scriptures. If you didn't bring one with you, there should be one under your seat or right in front of you. Find the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. We're reading through the New Testament. We've come through First Timothy. This last week we wrapped up 1 Timothy and read 2 Timothy. If you were here on Wednesday night uh, in this room, I preached... And I preached on 2 Timothy chapter 2. I know that some of you weren't here. I know that some of you were serving in other parts of the building. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 is what we talked about Wednesday. And I told the Wednesday night group that the Wednesday night sermon was really part one, and the sermon this morning was part two. The two topics, the two passages, the two themes fit together and tie together, especially in the context Of 2 Timothy. So, how I'd like to start this morning is just laying out a big picture view of what was happening in Paul's life when he wrote 2 Timothy. Then we'll talk about the big idea and we'll dig into our particular passage in chapter 4. So, if you want to understand 2 Timothy, you actually need to go back to a group of books that Paul had previously written. These books are known as the Prison Epistles. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, the prison epistles. Paul wrote these letters while he was in prison. There's a little bit of debate about where he was in prison when he wrote them, but most Bible scholars seem to agree that he was in prison in Rome under house arrest. You can read about this in the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. The book of Acts ends... All we know is that he's under house arrest, he's in prison, and tradition picks up at that point, point. and tradition tells us, not the Bible, but tradition tells us that Paul was released from house arrest, he was cleared of all the charges the Jews had brought against him. He continued to travel, he continued to preach, he continued to plant churches, and at some point he was arrested again, and he was taken back to Rome. And his conditions, the second time he was in prison in Rome, were not as nice as his conditions the first time that he was in Rome. So the first time he was in prison, he was under house arrest. The second time that he was in prison, he was located in what's called the Mamertine prison. This is a site that you can visit in Rome Today. There's a building that's been built on top of this site. You can go through a doorway into a, a room where there's some artifacts and some uh, things from church history. But then you can go down into the bottom level where the prison actually was. And it's just a small room, stone floor, stone walls, stone ceiling. And the Romans would keep prisoners here. The prisoners that were kept in this cell were not the folks who were in for a couple of weeks and then they were going to get let out. There's only two ways to get out of this prison in Paul's day. One was you could die in the prison. They would take you out and then dispose of your body the way the Romans did that. The second way to get out of this prison was the Romans would take you out, and then they would take you to be executed. So only two ways you got out of this prison. Paul, we know, was a Roman citizen, so he was not eligible for crucifixion. So again, church history kicks in here, and there is a Roman historian from the 4th century named Eusebius Who tells us that Paul was taken out of this prison during the reign of Nero and he was taken to execution where he was beheaded. Now, 2 Timothy is the very last letter that Paul wrote and he wrote it while he was a prisoner in the Mamertine prison in Rome. It's the very last letter, the real prison epistle, if you will, of Paul's letters. If you want to know what Paul's life was like here in his final days, you can read the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, beginning in about verse 9. And we talked about some of this on Wednesday. I won't rehash all of it. Essentially, what you see beginning in verse 9 of 2 Timothy 4 is that Paul was lonely. He was cold. He was bored. He knew that his life was coming to an end. He had been abandoned by most of his friends. Many of his co-workers had turned their back on the gospel. At least one had fallen in love with the world, Paul says, and life was just pretty bleak for Paul. And he writes this letter to Timothy as sort of the last charge to a young man that he viewed as his son in the faith, his protege, somebody that he had mentored, somebody that he had left behind in Ephesus to pastor one of the most important churches in the ancient world. So that's the setting for 2 Timothy. Our passage is chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. And the big idea is, I want to set it before you this morning, is this. As the church, we are called to make disciples of all nations. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, as members of a church... We are called to make disciples of all nations. Now, understand that that big idea comes directly from Matthew 28. And our passage is 2 Timothy 4. So stay with me. Let's read 2 Timothy 4:1 to 5, and then I'll try to connect some of these dots as we go. This is the Word of God, 2 Timothy 4:1. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father. We thank you this morning for the book of 2 Timothy. We thank you for this look into Paul's life and into his charge to Timothy. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom this morning as we think about what this passage means for us as a church, guide our thinking. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned just a moment ago the big idea I have taken word for word, not from 2 Timothy 4, but from Matthew 28. We talked about Matthew 28, Wednesday night. Matthew 28 is a passage that we typically refer to as the Great Commission. It's an interesting way to refer to that passage because all of the Gospels, each of the Gospels, has a passage where Jesus commissions His disciples to go out into the world with the Gospel. But we tend to look at the one in Matthew 28 and we tend to say, this is the Great Commission. When I say to you the words, the Great Commission, if you have any church background at all, and you hear me say the Great Commission, your mind instinctively, I think, as an American, goes towards something that happens on the other side of the world. Great Commission. Got it. Matthew 28, that's the stuff that our missionaries do when we send them to the other side of the world. Of the world. But the Great Commission is not just for missionaries. The Great Commission is for Christians. And on Wednesday night, we talked about Jesus prefacing the Great Commission with the words, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. We obey the Great Commission because the one who has all authority authority in the cosmos has told us to do something and the one thing that he tells us to do in Matthew 28 18 19 20 is make disciples that's the one command at the end of Matthew 28 make disciples as you're going make disciples when you share the gospel and people get saved you baptize them in the name of the father the son the holy spirit you teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you And as you do this, as you go about the process of making disciples, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even into the end of the age. And the call is to make disciples. That is not just something that happens on the other side of the world. That is something that Jesus intends to happen within our homes and within our church. And I want to be clear with you about this task of making disciples. And I want you to see from 2 Timothy and Matthew 28, four levels of discipleship. So that we get it in our heads that making disciples is not just for missionaries or pastors, but it's for Christians. Four levels of discipleship you can discern in the Bible, especially in 2 Timothy and Matthew 28. The first is this. Making disciples as a church... Begins with family discipleship. Family discipleship. Discipleship begins in your home. It does not flip on like a switch when you walk into this room. But it ought to begin in your home. And Paul recognizes this in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. He says to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy. A faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy did not have a Christian father. He did have a Christian mom, and he had a Christian grandma. And they took their job seriously when it came to passing down the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to their son and their grandson, Timothy. If you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, you have the responsibility to begin the discipleship process in your family, in your home. That's not where it ends, but it's where it begins, in the home, in your family. Here's a second level of discipleship. We'll call it personal discipleship. And this is really what we talked about Wednesday night in this room. When we looked at 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, it says, "...what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also." There's four generations of believers in that passage. Paul, number one, passed something down to Timothy. Number two, Timothy was to pass that gospel message down. Number three, to faithful men. And the faithful men, fourth, were to pass it on to others also. Person to person to person. That's how the gospel advances. That's how disciples are made. Discipleship begins in your family. And then it moves to this person-to-person level of discipleship described in 2 Timothy 2. The third level of discipleship is what we're talking about this morning. We'll call it corporate discipleship. Corporate discipleship. It's the central command in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Timothy, preach the word. When your church is gathered together corporately, Timothy, pastor in Ephesus... When Emmanuel Baptist Church is gathered together corporately, it's somebody's job each Sunday, each Wednesday night to stand up and to say, this is the Word of God. And that is part of our disciple-making strategy. It begins with your family. It exists on a person-to-person level. It exists on a corporate level. And then fourth, we would say there is also a global aspect to discipleship. Matthew 28 The central command that Jesus gave His disciples, make disciples of all the nations. That includes your nation, our nation, and all of the other nations of the earth. And if you and I are going to be faithful in that global level of discipleship, we have to go and we have to give. We have to go to the ends of the earth as we have opportunity, and we have to give so that others can be sent. As God blesses us. Now that's discipleship in a biblical sense. Four levels of discipleship. And in an ideal disciple making environment. All of those levels are firing in the same direction. Discipleship begins at the home. Discipleship takes place on a person to person level. Discipleship takes place on a corporate level. For us as a church family. And then discipleship moves out of this building to the ends of the earth when we think about taking the gospel to the nations. Now, our focus is on one level of that discipleship. It's not to say that others are not important. It's just to say that our focus in 2 Timothy 4 is on the idea of corporate discipleship. In this command, Paul to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Let me invite you into some of the awkwardness that pastors experience in life on several different levels. One level of awkwardness is that if you are in a social gathering and food is about to be consumed, people assume that you as a pastor have never put food in your mouth without saying a prayer first. These people may or may not be people who pray before they eat, but they assume that something terrible will happen to you if you put food in your mouth without blessing it. And they also assume that you as the pastor are the only person qualified in the room to bless the food. And so you usually get asked, would you say the blessing? Absolutely. Pastors can do that. We'll say the blessing. Another awkward thing pastors experience is that many times you're around people who don't know you're a pastor. And at some point, the question comes up, what do you do for a living? And you tell them what you do for a living and immediately their colorful language gets cleaned up and is very, it just changes just like that. It's the most amazing thing. Here's another awkward thing that pastors experience, and I think my wife would tell you that she experiences this as well. Many times you're around people, they don't know you're a pastor. And they say to you, What do you do for a living? They find out that you're a pastor. Most people are nice to pastors. I don't know. Sometimes pastors whine and complain and act like their job is so terrible. It's really not that bad. Most people are pretty nice. They're pretty friendly. And when they find out that you're a pastor, many people want to relate to you. They want to have some sort of connection with you. So they will say, you're a preacher. You're a pastor. I love listening to so-and-so. I'm not going to name any names. I'm just going to leave it at so-and-so. I love listening to so-and-so. Now, up to that point, it's fine. Because up to that point, I can say, okay. Okay. But it never gets left at that level. And they always follow up with the question, actually two questions. Do you know them? Have you heard of them? And do you like them? Nine times out of ten, the answers to those questions are, Yes, I've heard of them. No, I don't like them. My wife gets these questions all the time. Your your husband's a pastor? Well, I like to listen to so-and-so. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I know who it is. Do you like them? Eh. No, we try to be diplomatic. We don't try to just insult people or be mean to people and you kind of navigate the awkwardness of that situation but it happens regularly let me tell you something else that happens regularly sometimes people find out you're a, a pastor or a pastor's wife and instead of just saying I like this person they will say to you this is really interesting well I'll listen to this person and this person and this person and this person maybe they list two or three or four people and then they'll say have you heard of them yes I've heard of them do you like them well some of them And what's interesting to me as a pastor is I usually know who they're talking about. And many times, the names that get lumped into that world of listening to sermons do not believe the same thing about the Bible. And they do not preach the same gospel. Now, they all call themselves pastors. They all have podcasts or TV shows or books or whatever. They all talk about Jesus, but they do not believe or preach the same thing. And I often find myself wondering, how is it that you can like that collection of people? It would be like somebody coming to the tailgate this Friday at church saying, I'm rooting for both teams. Well, what do you mean you're rooting for both teams? You can't root for OHS and Permian. Pick a side. You can be like me. You can root for nobody. Or you can pick a side. You can't root for both, can you? How how can you hold these things together? It'd be like you saying to me after church, hey, I'm going to watch the football game. My two favorite teams are playing today, the Cowboys and the Redskins. No, that's not possible. You can't like both of those teams. That's impossible. And many times people say, oh, I listen to this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. And you pull them into your orbit and you say, what do they have in common? Because they don't have beliefs in common. They don't have doctrine in common. They don't have a common view of God or sin or salvation or Jesus or church or any of it. What do they have in common? And many times what they have in common is fame. An ability to communicate clearly. An ability to move people on an intellectual or an emotional level. They are good communicators. They are entertaining speakers. And they may or may not be faithful to what the Bible actually says about any given topic. So I think about that as a pastor from time to time. And I look at this command where Paul says to Timothy. Time is short for Paul. This is not a long letter. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Every pastor thinks they do this. My question is, what did Paul actually have in mind when he told Timothy preach the word? Did he have in mind, Timothy, you've got to entertain them, you've got to start with a good story, have three points, they all start with the same letter, you end with a poem and a prayer. Is that what he meant? Did he mean that you have to stand behind a podium or hold your notes in your hand? Or, I mean, was it a technique thing that he had in mind? Was he saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to take the greatest pop psychology from the streets of Ephesus and give it to your people in sermon form every week? Was he saying to Timothy, I want you to get on your soapbox and rant and rave about whatever has gotten under your skin on social media that week, and then if you can, it would be great if you could back into the Bible and find some Bible verses that kind of give some support to what you're saying. There's a lot of things that fall under the umbrella of preaching, and there's a lot of things that we could say about this command, preach the Word. What I want us to do is simply listen to chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. And let Paul himself explain what he means when he says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. So here's the first thing that Paul means. He means preaching demands availability. Preaching requires availability. Look at verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Timothy, you need to be ready. You need to be like a fireman at the station who's on call. He's ready. What does that mean? It means more than he's there and he's physically able to walk out the building. It means he's prepared and he's available. He's on the go. The availability is important, but the availability is meaningful because he is prepared. He's trained. There may be a few preachers or teachers who can stand up with little or no preparation and deliver something faithful and coherent and compelling from the scriptures. Your pastor is not one of them. I have to prepare, I have to think, I have to study. I have to read. I have to write things down. I have to scratch them out and rewrite them a different way. I have to pray over it. I have to read some more, think some more. It's a process, and it's work. It's not easy work. It's hard mental work to understand what a passage says and to be ready to say something with hopefully some degree of clarity and faithfulness to the text. Be ready. Anyone can stand up and tell stories. Anyone can stand up, read a Bible verse, say something that may or may not connect to it, end with a prayer and call it a sermon or a lesson. Timothy, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You need to work hard so that you're ready to stand up and preach the Word. Timothy, you need to be ready in season and out of season. Timothy, when it's convenient for you, And when it's not convenient for you, you've got to preach the Word. Timothy, when you wake up on Sunday morning and you feel very close to the Lord, and, believe it or not, preachers wake up on Sunday mornings and sometimes they just want to hit snooze. In season and out of season, Timothy. Timothy, when you know that you're going to speak to people who want to hear from God, and, Timothy, when you know that you're going to speak to people who do not want to hear what God has said, you've got to be ready. And you've got to preach the Word in season and out of season. I can tell you I preached a funeral not that long ago, and you could literally draw a line down the middle of the room. This half of the room, very eager to hear what the Bible had to say about life and death, this half of the room, not very eager. In season and out of season. Why does it need to be ready? Why does it need to do this in season and out of season? And why is the focus of all of it preaching the Word, the Scriptures? The answer to that question is actually in the verses just before our passage. If your Bible's open, you can look at 2 Timothy 3. 16 and 17, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You understand that even after a whopping 15 years of preaching sermons, I have no ability to pierce your heart. Or to change your heart. But you understand that this book is breathed out by God. This book is profitable. It is useful. It is valuable. It is powerful. For what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. My job is to be ready. Your Sunday school teacher's job is to be ready. To stand up in front of a room like this or a smaller class. And to say, this is what the Bible says. Whether we feel like it's true or not, whether you want to hear it or not, be ready in season and out of season. The first thing Paul thinks of is availability. Secondly, Paul says this, preaching calls for courage and kindness. Courage and kindness in equal measure. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, teaching, reproof, correction, training. All those things get echoed in chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's part of the job of the preacher or the teacher. To reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. To say to you, this thing is sinful. It angers God. And you need to stop it and you need to repent and to exhort you to repentance and obedience. That takes courage. If you've ever taught a Sunday school class or preached a sermon, you know that takes courage. This is the dilemma every Bible teacher, every Bible preacher faces. It's summed up in Galatians 1, who do you want to please, God or human beings? When you stand up in front of people, in a big group or a small group, To say something about the Bible, you got to settle that in your mind and in your heart. Who am I aiming to please? Am I aiming to please God, or am I aiming to please these people? Because the way you answer that question will determine if you're willing to stand up in front of people and to do this. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And, Paul says, do it with complete patience. Don't be a jerk. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. I'll be honest with you, this is one of the hardest things to get balanced out in your mind, in your heart, in your job as a preacher or a teacher. To say, am I being courageous and am I being kind? Am I being too courageous? Am I being too kind? Anyone who's taught any number of times, even once, will probably know the feeling of finishing that talk and walking away and saying one or the other, I don't think I was very kind. Or, I think I was too kind to them. It's not easy. As somebody who preaches and teaches regularly in this church and on behalf of our elders and our teachers. I would ask you to pray for us that as a church we would figure that balance out as we go as best we can. That we would be equal parts courageous and kind. And according to what the Bible says, the world doesn't agree with this. Who are you going to please, God or the world? According to what the Bible says, you can do both. You can be courageous and you can be kind. That's wrapped up in the task of teaching and preaching. Thirdly, Paul wants Timothy to know that preaching is always opposed. It always faces opposition. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. The time is coming. You circle that phrase. The time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The time is coming. When is that time? If you've read First Timothy and 2 Timothy, you know that that time was in Timothy's day in Ephesus. That there were people. Paul says this to Timothy. There's people who have wandered off from the truth and they're following myths. And they want nothing to do with hearing the truth. Timothy had to deal with that. And if you've been around people very much in the last month, or you've watched the news, or you've scrolled through social media, you know that that time is now. We're in that time today in Odessa, Texas. You look around, there's people with itchy ears. There's people who say, I don't want to hear that. I refuse to listen to that. Don't say that. The time is coming, Paul says. Preaching's always opposed. I don't ever want to be the kind of pastor, preacher, who stands up and whines about how terrible everything is today and constantly says, oh, back in the good old days. The Bible actually tells us not to do that. Be very careful to talk about the good old days because guess what? They weren't as good as you remember them being you can study human history for five minutes and you can understand that there's a lot of bad days in the old days. So I'm not trying to say back in the old days it was better than it is today, but I will say this to you. Never, never before in the history of the world, never has it been as easy as it is today For people with itchy ears to surround themselves with teachers who say only what they want to hear. It has never been easier. And the reason it's never been easier is because of that little black rectangular flat box you carried into this room this morning. Maybe it was in your pocket, maybe it was in your hand and you were swiping on it some direction, typing on it. Maybe it's in your purse, maybe one of yours is about to ring or read the Bible to us out loud, I don't know. But those little black boxes that you carry around, it has never been easier for you to go off track here. And for you and me to be the people he's talking about in verse 3 and verse 4 has never been easier. You can easily live in an online echo chamber of people who say exactly what you want to hear rather than listening to people who say what the Bible says. It's not anything new. Timothy had to face the same challenges in Ephesus, but it's never been easier to go off track in opposing God's Word. One last truth. What does Paul think about this preaching? Paul thinks preaching is a solemn task. A solemn task. Look what he says in verse 1. The actual command is in verse 2, preach the word. But he prefaces prefaces the whole thing by saying, I charge you. I charge you. Essentially what Paul's saying is, I'm about to give you a command, but before I give you the command, I'm going to tell you that it's a command. So I'm going to tell you to do something, but first I'm going to tell you to do what I'm about to tell you to do. This is really serious, Timothy. I'm about to die. This letter's about to be over. Timothy, this is about it. I have some personal things to say to you, but this is about the last piece of advice I'm going to throw your way. And it's not just a recommendation, it's a command. And I am charging you, Timothy, in the presence of God. Timothy, when you stand up in front of those people to preach the word, you are not just speaking to people in a room. You are speaking in the presence of Almighty God. Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead who will appear and bring a kingdom. That's heavy stuff. He lays a charge on Timothy. And it leads up to the command in verse 2. Preach the word. My job is not to make you like me. It's not to make you think I'm smart. It's not to impress you with how much I've studied or how many things I know. It's not to make you think I'm funny. It has nothing to do with me. I mean, you could substitute me for Corey, for Jason, for Ron, for Chris, for Jake, whoever stands up here. Your Sunday school teacher has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with whoever is standing before the people of God saying, this is what the Word of God says. Preach the Word. It's a solemn task. It's solemn for the person speaking, and there's warnings in the New Testament that not many should become teachers or preachers because of the solemnity of it. There's also a solemnity for those who hear, for those who sit in a room like this or who sit in a Sunday school room or who sit in an Awana class or sit in a youth room or sit in a three-year-old nursery room when somebody says, this is what the Bible says. You understand, if you're teaching in any of those places, you're not just teaching three-year-olds, you're not just teaching grown-ups, you're not just teaching a Sunday school class or an Awana class. You are teaching God's people, and God is present. And you, we, who sit in rooms like this and listen, are not just listening to oh, that's Landon. He's always talking about the cowboys. Oh, that's Corey just Corey. He's always joking around. Oh, it's just Jake. It's just... No, when somebody stands up and they accurately divide the Word of God, you are hearing from God. I'm not saying we're infallible, but I'm saying that when someone rightly divides the Scriptures to you, you are hearing from God. That's a solemn thing to speak for God, to hear from God through His Word. Look what Paul says in verse 5. He says, Timothy, always be sober-minded. A Roman general would give that command to his troops right before they went into battle. Literally, it means don't lose your head. Focus. Lock in. Always be sober-minded. Timothy, endure suffering. Timothy, if you decide to please God, God, rather than men, it may not always be easy for you. You may suffer, and you're going to have to endure that suffering. Don't run away from it. Don't shrink from it. Don't let it cower you in fear. Endure suffering. Look what he says in verse 5. Do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, there will be people in your Sunday school class, your Awana class, your three-year-old nursery class, in big church, Timothy... They don't know Jesus Christ. You've got to do the work of an evangelist. You've got to tell them that this book is true. You've got to tell them that God is holy. You've got to tell them that they're not holy. You've got to tell them that Jesus died for them, that they could be forgiven and have life. You've got to tell them that they're called to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. And you've got to tell them that God is faithful and just, that when they do that, He will forgive their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. You've got to do the work of an evangelist. It's a solemn work, Timothy. To fulfill your ministry. Why do you need to know all this? It's pretty obvious why someone like me needs to know it. Why do you need to know it? This would be great stuff for an elder's Bible study, Sunday school teacher's meeting. Why do you need to hear it? One reason you need to hear it is that you currently live in Odessa, Texas. And I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the people who live in Odessa don't stay in Odessa forever. That might be you at some point. And you may find yourself in a new place, looking for a new church, saying what am I looking for? Funny stories, sermon outlines, notes that I can follow along with, or a personality, or what am I looking for? You're looking for somebody who will preach the Word. You need to understand what that means. Another reason you need to know it is that as I look around the room, I see an awful lot of people in our first service and in this service who do an awful lot of teaching at our church. Sunday school, Awanas, VBS, camps, retreats, ladies' Bible study, men's Bible study, small groups. There's a lot of you who do that. You need to understand what it means to preach the Word, to teach the Word of God. I look around the room and I see people who come here to this place, to this room, and you sit here and we sing songs together and you listen to me or one of the other guys speak. You need to know what to expect when you come into this room. No one's put it on a performance for you. I went to a performance Friday night, the performance. I paid to go, bought a ticket, went. Thought it was pretty good. When I left, me and my wife evaluated, did you like it? It was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. I liked this part. I didn't. This part was not that good, but this part was good. So performance. This is not a performance. No one's performing for you. And you can leave and do all the critiquing you want to do. It's not a performance. It's a worship service where the people of God gather together and believe it or not, hear from God. That's a solemn thing. That is way too solemn for you and I to walk out of here and say, well, preacher went five minutes too long. Kind of annoying. Well, the band didn't play the song the right way. The way I like it. Kind of bothered me. So and so didn't even talk to me in the hallway. Can't stand that person. Best case scenario, we get you for two, three, four hours a week. Best case. Sunday morning, worship, Bible study, Wednesday night, maybe ladies' Bible study, maybe men's Bible study. That's about it. Two, three, four hours a week. You don't need to come here to be entertained. You don't need to come here to hear jokes. You don't need to come here to hear stories. You don't need to come here for any kind of performance. When you come here, what needs to happen is that the people leading need to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, to do it with patience and teaching. It's availability. It's courage. It's kindness. You need to be ready to walk into this building not to oppose what's being said, Not to say, well, I've already listened to my favorite whatever this week and got my spiritual fix in. I don't know about the rest of this stuff that's going on. But to hear from the Word of God. We gather together knowing it's a solemn thing to stand up and to speak for God or to hear from God. Paul to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Let's pray.